Hey everyone, you are listening to Vegan Theology. This is episode 21 with Kevin and Sarah Hale. Hey Sarah. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Not bad, you? I'm doing well. Yeah. How is your Lent going so far? Not too bad. It's been a good time of reflection and a little bit of fasting, trying to be very mindful of what I eat. And it's interesting when you fast in any form, it does really heighten some of your senses. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, and, and I think we've fasted in the past. And when you fast for a long period of time, you really start to crave certain foods and certain flavors and tastes and that kind of thing. And you always think, well, when I break this fast, I cannot wait to go get whatever, whatever that might be. And so it's really interesting. The fact that this is a vegan theology show, we're kind of to some degree focused on food already. Right. But it's interesting that this time of year invites us to do some type of fast. And because there is in this practice, there's something spiritual about eating and when we be start to become very mindful of what we're eating or what we're not eating, what we say about so many of the sacraments or the practices is we do them, we perform them, but they do something to us. It's a part of a spiritual awakening on some level. Right. It's transformative. You start to realize how much you eat when you're not hungry and how much you eat for comfort. and Or the quality, the quality of your food, right? I think at times we try to focus on high nutrition. Yeah versus easy processed food. And you start to feel, at at least at certain moments of your fast, you start to feel, oh, like a a freedom from your attachment to food. Right. Which is a a very empowering, interesting spiritual experience. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah, once you fast and you realize you can go without for a length of time, yeah, it does recalibrate your senses and your perspective, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm. Yeah. I have been enjoying Lent so far. We're here right at the very beginning of Lent. I always do enjoy Lent. I think there's two big cycles in the church calendar. One, the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas tide, and then the 40 days of Lent leading up to Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday. And right. Yeah, I would say this is definitely my favorite time of year And I went to an Ash Wednesday service. I love how Lent begins right off the bat with confronting death, Mm. confronting corruption, confronting that God's good creation is is no longer the way it's supposed to be. It was intended to be. And that my pastor pulled out the value of facing our own death. One of the many values of that spiritually is you realize it's a great time to set your priorities straight and decide how do I want to live this life I have right now. Mm. So it's a great way to start Lent, Yeah, this time of contemplation. But within it is this hope, right? Like Jesus came to this broken world and then gave of himself and has promised God is going to redeem creation right. and make it right and reconcile all things. So... In this show, we're focusing on the first Sunday of Lent. Yeah, tomorrow is the first Sunday of Lent. And I think every episode will kind of have that double focus that Stuckey in his book, the church calendar book, refers to in Lent. There's time for a probing consideration of our human condition, including sin, 
and its deadly consequences for both us as individuals, but also for society. But the second focus is it's an equally intense time to consider the new possibilities offered to us in Jesus Christ mm. and the implications of those new possibilities in terms of our practical living. Right. And I think every episode through Lent, we're going to kind of have two sections of the episode. One will be to look at the lectionary passages that are prescribed reading by the church for each Sunday of Lent. And we'll just look at those and discuss them a little bit. And then the second section of the episode will be discussing Gail Boss's book, Wild Hope. Mm. And we'll put the link to the online lectionary that we're using in yeah. the podcast notes. If you go to the online lectionary for year B, it's a three-year cycle through Scripture. Year B is the year we're in now. And if you're unfamiliar with the lectionary, there's always an Old Testament passage followed by a psalm. The third is always a, an epistles passage. And then the fourth is a gospel passage. Mm. And it's awesome because both the Old Testament passage and the gospel passage for this first Sunday in Lent talk about animals mm. and refer to animals. And so it's like the sovereignty of God. There we go. <laughs> All right. I mean... The first one is Genesis 9, 8 through 17. So that is the Noahic Covenant, which mm. we just discussed two episodes ago in Lindsay's book. Yeah. His chapter 8 spends a lot of time commenting on the Noahic Covenant yeah. and what it means for vegans, what it means for humans in terms of eating. And so then it's the psalm for the first Sunday is Psalm 25, 1 through 10. The epistle is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And the gospel, which I'd like also like to focus on, is Mark 1, 9 through 15. So let's just take a look at the Old Testament passage. So again, Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So remember, this is when the flood is over. They have left the ark, mm -hmm. and God is reestablishing God's relationship with humanity. And so this language is very familiar. It's the exact same language used in the garden with Adam and Eve. Mm. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Then God goes on to say something totally different than what he said in the garden, right? The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. That was the NIV. The NASB says the fear of you and the terror of you will be on all those animals. Mm. And into your hand they are given. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Again, this is brand new. This is where God gives permission, official permission, to now you may eat animals. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants... Remember from Genesis 1, I now give you everything. And it's interesting, in the message translation here, Eugene Peterson also puts in the language from Genesis. He translates here in the Noahic Covenant, you're responsible for them, hmm. which is exactly how Peterson translated 
when God was talking to Adam and Eve and saying, I'm, I'm putting you in charge. You are responsible for all these creatures. Mm-hmm. God says it again here in the Noahic covenant. You're responsible for them. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being also. I will demand accounting for the life of another human being. The NASB has it, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man. When we were reading Lindsay, Lindsay spent a lot of time on this, that clearly it's a very grave and serious matter to take the life of one of God's creatures. Right. It's a very serious thing. The shedding of blood and or eating an animal that still has its lifeblood is forbidden. Mm. And so Lindsay goes to great lengths, I think, to point out that God is not giving us the right to kill. I think Lindsay uses the term ambiguous permission or very qualified permission. That now, apparently, given our context, it is now necessary to be able to kill and eat, but it's definitely not God's original plan. Right. Maybe it was for a period of time, right? A certain dispensation. Like we talked about, they just came off the ark. Maybe vegetation wasn't readily available. Totally. And so this was a stopgap measure. Yeah, I I could think of two, at least two reasons why food is no longer abundantly available as it was in the garden. Hmm. One, God said, once the fall, once the curse, once sin entered the picture... It's going to be hard for you to grow food. Like that was the curse given to Adam. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really hard for you to gain sustenance from the earth now. And then now, yeah, we've just been through a flood that destroyed the whole world. Vegetation is probably not readily available. And so it's, it's difficult. It's a very difficult context. And God is not giving up on humans. God is meeting them where they are and right. giving them this permission. But it's clear that it, killing for food should be done only when necessary, right. not flippantly. Well, this is also the idea that we will talk about in future episodes, but this concept of concession, God is making a concession given the circumstances that these humans are finding themselves in. Yeah. And then God goes on to say, and I think this is also really, it's just amazing to me that this is the passage in the lectionary for the first Sunday of Lent, If we remember another important aspect of the covenant, the Noahic covenant, is it wasn't just between God and the humans. God repeats over and over again, this is between me and all of my creatures. God makes covenants with animals. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And of course, then he gives the sign of his covenant between me and you and every living creature, a covenant for all generations to come. And it's the rainbow Whenever we see the rainbow, we remember this promise that God is not going to wipe everything out with a flood again. The NASB puts it, 
and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Wow, that's awesome. Whenever the, like the emphasis is made by repetition, right? Again, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. You know, it's worth pointing out again, like Lindsay did in chapter 8 of Animal Theology, why was God so offended by the state of affairs in the times of Noah? Because the earth had become so violent. Violence, right. It was the violence God repeated over and over again in Genesis chapter 6. It's the violence I can't stand. Right. So God is a God of nonviolence. You know, it just struck me just now, the fact that this Noahic covenant, the first thing God says is the terror, the fear of you is now going to be in every animal, every creature, meaning it wasn't there before. Right. Oh, great point. Anim- animals were very trusting and had a friendly relationship with humans until this point. Now God is giving them a terror and fear of humans. Almost, again, this is you could say, I think there's a real argument for, you could say this is just more evidence that God cares about his creatures. God cares about animals. It's a self-protection gift that now they're mm. they're terrified of humans. Oh, that's very interesting. They're not going to just walk right up to you and allow you to kill them. Like, right. They're going to try to get away from you. Right. Because maybe God knows that, again, we talk about power, that they're, humans are made in the image of God. Because we're in a world of brokenness and sin and evil doesn't mean we've lost mm-hmm. that power. It's just the power is now corrupted. Yeah. So given that we're in the season of Lent and given that this is our passage of scripture for the first Sunday of Lent, I think it's good to remember that God is a God of nonviolence and mercy and compassion right? and that the concession that God gave us, that God granted, that we're allowed to kill for food is not God's original plan and should only be done in the gravest of situations, in the gravest of circumstances when it is necessary to do so, and that God will require an accounting for the loss of life. Mm. And so it's a great time of year in the season of Lent for us to remember that we should do without killing for food. Right. And we can. It's very easy for us. We're not in that circumstance any longer. So in our opinion, this is a more faithful interpretation of this lectionary passage of Scripture. Right. I mean, yeah, it reminds me of some of the language used in Creature Kind's Lenten content. They say, hey, how about giving up indifference to farmed animals mm. for Lent? Or let's fast from injustice and feast in freedom so, yeah, giving up animal exploitation for Lent is definitely a, a good thing to consider. Right, right, 100%. Yeah. The second passage I think it'd be fun to look at is the gospel passage recommended for the first Sunday of Lent, which is Mark 1, 9 through 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. The way Peterson interprets this in the message, at once the same spirit pushed Jesus out into the wild. For 40 wilderness days and nights, he was tested by Satan. Wild animals were his companions, and angels took care of him. And many commentators have looked at that phrase that Mark puts in there, that Jesus was out in the wilderness with the wild animals as his companions. It's a very... Eden, Adam Mm -hmm. picture, that Jesus is the new Adam who has made peace, who has a peaceful, friendly relationship with the wild animals. They are not full of terror and fear of him. Hmm. It's a relationship that's been set right. Right. Wow, it's pretty powerful imagery. It's beautiful. It is. And I would love to hear it from the pulpit. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Calling all you pastors. Right. Yeah. So those are the two lectionary passages Mm. we wanted to focus on for this first Sunday of Lent. Very nice. I feel like we're always reading different things and we're trying to correlate so much information into a... Synthesize it. Synthesize so much information, yeah, into some sort of cohesive whole. And I've been reading some Richard Rohr and it's always interesting reading his works because, I don't know, he just has some very amazing wisdom Mm. and so much of it I feel like lines up with everything that we're talking about in this podcast in terms of new creation in terms of practice in terms of living out our faith in reality in the present and it's just fascinating to me and it's ironic to me that and maybe it's not because you know we are Protestants we grew up Protestants and we're not we don't want to put too, too fine a point on that but he's Catholic and maybe the Catholics have been better at practice than say we have Mm. and we've been more focused on believing the right things and so there's just a couple passages i just wanted to read what's this from i believe it's from his book breathing underwater we've also seen references i think even even in gail boss's book from his uh, book the universal christ so it's interesting that she's pulling in richard Rohr as well Mm. Uh, and i've got various Rohr books but this is interesting. When we're, when we're talking about, let me just read this. It says, a view of sin as disease opens a new level of meaning in the interplay between Jesus's healing and teaching ministries. Jesus's teachings illuminate his healings and his healings illuminate his teachings. The complementary nature of Jesus's healings and teachings point to the possibility of a harmonious marriage of orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice. And I thought that was fascinating. And he just goes a little further with some commentary on this. And again, this is where I see it really fitting in here, and I have more to say, but uh, he says, It is astonishing that the Christian tradition, with Jesus as the archetype, focused so much energy on emphasizing the need 
to agree on its transcendent claims without giving the same energy to the need for practice. The choice to idealize the importance of transcendent truth claims had lasting implications that are still apparent in Christianity today. With the omission of practical steps as an integral element of human transformation, Christianity shifted into merely a belief system. When this happened, Christianity lost its prophetic both-and wisdom, its ability to include those at the edges and Jesus's nonviolent approach. I think that's fascinating. And just a few more points here. Uh, the gulf between following the ways of Jesus and empirical motives grew wider as the Christian preoccupation with metaphysics and the future became the avoiding of the physics itself and the present. And that's fascinating. It says the harmony between theory and practice was lost and humanity finds itself in the hands of the dominant preoccupation with the future, leaving those suffering in the present to hope for healing through a future salvation. And I know this is what we've talked about. Some of our first uh, episodes in this podcast were about the eternal state being on the new earth and being physical, bodily, right. and not that we're going to escape this earth or this present reality and go to a spiritual place like a heaven. That's We've talked about how that's more of a Greek idea, but I think what really hit me here, and I think some of what we're going to talk about and what we are already talking about in this podcast, it's a nice reflection for Lent, is this concept of healing, right? Last week we talked about the Sumatran orangutan and how we're decimating mm -hmm. their home, this rainforest, and last week we said there were 100,000 orangutans, and now there's less than 7,000 because we're depleting the forest, their own habitat, their, their home. And I thought to myself about healing, like, huh, you know, somewhere in the text it says that we will do even greater things than Jesus. Well, how about not participating in some of the consumer products that are devastating the rainforests, they're devastating the oceans, they're devastating the planet? Just think about that as healing, right? By not participating in, by not consuming products that contain palm oil. Right. We are potentially healing the natural world. Or at least we're not participating in supporting the destruction any longer. Correct. No, 100%. If there's not a consumer demand for these products, yeah, then maybe they'll stop depleting the rainforest to make room for more palm groves. Or palm plantations. Exactly. Anyway, just a thought in terms of our healing ability. And in terms of practice, too. Just bringing yeah. in the practice and the healing aspects. Yeah. The power that we hold on our hands right now. Mm. You're right. It ties so beautifully into Lent because Lent is considering what Jesus did to make his world a better place with his self-sacrificial love and considering, okay, how can we do the same? Right. How can we live out our orthodoxy how can we live it out it's a great time to consider those mm. things which leads perfectly into gail boss's book wild hope stories for lent from the vanishing again this book is focused specifically on many different species of animals wild animals who are in danger of becoming extinct because of human activities and her chapter for week one of lent is called The Hungry. 
in each chapter, she's going to focus on four different species of animals who are in danger. So this week, the hungry, which I just love. I love that she just calls it. That's the title of her chapter, The Hungry. Of course, we're supposed to care about the hungry as Christians. And so the four animals covered in this chapter are the red knot. That's K-N-O-T. I have never heard of this creature, but it's a fascinating little bird that we'll talk a little bit about. The Amur leopard, the Galapagos penguin, and the staghorn coral. So let's talk a little bit about the red knot. These awesome little birds, they fly from pole to pole each year. In February, they leave Tierra del Fuego, which is on the southern tip of South America. By June, they're mating, laying, hatching, and fledging their babies in Arctic Canada. Wow. I know. Then in October, they are back in Tierra del Fuego, and that's crazy. (laughs) It's 9,500 miles one way. These little birds, they weigh the size of an avocado, and when they're flying, (laughs) they're not eating, and they lose like half their weight just from flying. So interestingly, while they're on this journey, they are like becoming famished. They converge in the Delaware Bay in May. And the reason that is, is because there's this lunar thing going on and horseshoe crabs are coming up onto the beach and laying billions of eggs kind of in the sand Mm. on the shore. And it's the same time that these red knots show up and these red knots then for like 12 days, they just sit there and feast on these horseshoe crab eggs. And it just replenishes them because they still have 2,000 miles to go from Delaware Bay up to the Arctic in Canada. And then they lay their babies in the Tega, the tundra, whatever, up there. So interestingly, though, the problem that is happening is that overfishing of horseshoe crabs means there's less and less crab eggs. Yeah. And this, in turn, has led to a 75% loss of the red knots within our lifetime. So, again, just, and we've seen many documentaries about this, this overfishing. There are so many out there yeah. we can mention, but overfishing, I mean, it's, we're just abusing our oceans on a massive scale. And it's affecting these little birds, these red knots, and their whole migration pattern and the horseshoe crabs, the whole thing. Right. Yeah. What an amazing thing to think that how interwoven all of these species are and the fact that the red knot shows up at different points along the globe in this amazing migration right. to show up at just the right time to be able to eat certain things. Right, high I energy. Mean, it's like perfectly right. timed. Right. And then we, because of our greed, honestly, have stepped in and have taken away their sustenance. Right. And now they're on the verge of no longer being here. The second animal in the chapter, the hungry, is the Amur leopards who are living in East Russia. Scientists started to be concerned about their extinction back in the 70s. And they determined at that time that there were about 30 Amur leopards left. So, of course, this animal used to thrive all over southeastern Russia, northwestern China, and the Korean Peninsula for millennia. Wow. 
but humans have pushed them out of their habitat until they only survived in one thin slice of the Russian province Primorsky. Human hunters overhunted the deer in the area, so many of the leopards started to starve. And those who didn't starve were hunted by humans mm. as competitors for the deer and for their luxurious coats. Yeah. In 2012, the government agreed to open a leopard park. It's about one-third the size of Yellowstone. And we have seen that their numbers have started to grow. Right. She also mentions in there that China might even, on the border, extend a habitat for them on, on China's territory, in China's country. That's great. Which would just extend their territory. These Amur leopards are very elusive. Very interesting. They had to put yeah. cameras out to try and find them. And I think they were saying in the bit we were reading that the babies, scientists saw them when they were first born, and then they didn't see them for a long time because they were just so elusive. The yeah. mother was great at protecting them. This points to a worldwide phenomenon, really, of wiping out the carnivorous wildlife on the planet because ranchers see them as competition and a threat to their commodified animals. Hunters see them as competition. Like here where we live, it's the wolf who mm. has been villainized and, you know, it has been open season, depending on who's in office. Right. It has at times been open season on the wolves. And then we say, oh, well, let's protect them within these boundaries right. of a park or whatever, which is great. But, of course, the animals don't know when they've crossed that boundary. Right. You know, and so. Right. And so that's what we see in Yellowstone. The, the wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone. And while they're in the park, they're protected. But when they cross outside of the Yellowstone Park boundaries, then they go into ranch territory and they kill livestock and then they get killed uh, by ranchers. And ranchers are not big fans, it seems. And I think the same thing has happened with these leopards too, right? They have these protected areas, but if they wander outside the protected areas, then they're it's free reign. Yeah, they're free game. Yeah. It's unfortunate. They're beautiful animals. Both in both cases. All right. The next animal in this uh, chapter, the hungry, are the Galapagos penguins. They live at the equator on Isabella, the largest of the Galapagos Islands. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And I think she mentioned that they are the only warm weather penguins. Species. Well, she, she definitely says they're the only penguins that live on the equator. Okay. okay. Which is fascinating. Right. And so if food is not readily available, Somehow they know that and they won't mate. And so then they won't lay eggs and then there won't be any parenting because to sit on eggs instead of searching for food would invite more starvation. So it's an interesting thing that they're aware of their food supply to some degree. And their numbers have declined by 65% since 1983. Part of that is the algae, clogged water, the warming oceans, and overfishing. And as we know, as we can probably get into, some of the reasons that algaes are blowing up are because of an animal agriculture runoff that's flowing into the oceans. Right. So overfishing as well as animal agriculture is killing our oceans and causing all of these species of animals to really, really suffer. Right. And the fourth animal... Okay, I have to admit, I don't think I really thought that coral were 
animals, right. creatures. Right. Um, obviously, they're different than a warm-blooded vertebrate. Right. I knew they were alive. I, yeah, I, I just thought they were plants, right. to be honest. But she focuses on the staghorn coral, and her story occurs with some scientists at Key Largo, and they talk about how at just a few decades ago, the staghorn coral was glorious and beautiful and vibrant and flourishing. And now if the divers that go down there are seeing just these crumbling, bleached out, dead coral, humans are going in there and collecting the spores and taking them into the lab and trying to, they're basically manually trying to spread the corals again. And once again, fishing, particularly unsustainable fishing, which, let's be honest, is all fishing at this point, can have a large-scale, long-term ecosystem-level effect that can change ecosystem structure from coral-dominated reefs to algae-dominated reefs. We're learning this keeps occurring. The algae chokes out the oxygen in the water, and all kinds of creatures die. This results from the removal of fish that eat the algae and keep the reef clean to allow for space for corals to grow. And of course, there's land-based sources that are killing off the staghorn coral as well. Uh, One of the main ones, again, is agricultural runoff. Mm. Some of this information I gained from the NOAA.gov website. Just if people want to look into that a little bit more. Yeah, we can throw that in the uh, notes. Cool. Yeah, I mean, so the takeaways for those of us going through Lent and wanting to bear God's image a little more faithfully, I think. You know, when we think about these four particular species of animals that are really suffering, would be to stop supporting fishing, stop buying and eating fish and sea animals, because... Out of these four animals she focused on, three of them are going extinct primarily as a result of overfishing. Stop supporting human hunting. Like There's nothing natural or healthy for the ecosystem about human hunting. Human hunters always go after the young and the strong. That's not how natural animal predators operate. They go after the old and the sick. They weed out the ones who are struggling to survive. They leave the strong. Humans do the opposite. And, of course, stop supporting land-based animal agriculture because it's killing the oceans. We can't survive without our oceans. I think the oceans are definitely an area that we as vegans sometimes overlook, but we can't. Right. The oceans are so important to us. So important to us. I mean, we look at each of these animals, right? The red knot and its amazing migration, The Amur leopard with its elusive nature and its gorgeous, luxurious coats. The Galapagos penguins living there on the equator who are smart enough to know, like, if I can't find enough fish to eat, I'm certainly not going to mate and try to rear a, a baby. And then the beautiful coral that provide food and shelter for so many animals. Like, they're all so beautiful and so inspiring. And as Christians, we can see God's handiwork. We can see God's character in these amazing creatures. Like, they matter. They matter to God. They should matter to us. And we can do our part to not contribute to this. Right. So, again, not eating fish, not supporting animal agriculture, 
scientists say that if everybody were to stop supporting these animal-intensive industries, there would be an immediate impact on our climate and our Earth. So it's definitely something we need to be talking about and thinking about. So bringing us to a close for this week, there is just a section of a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning I saw this week. She says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. It just made me think, like, let us all be those who see God in all of creation and, uh, like, see God within creation and take off our shoes and actually care about what impact we're having on God's creation. Mm. Mm, Very nice. All right, well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.